Our New Testament reading this morning will first be from the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and then we will turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Luke 12, beginning in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And then turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture that we read just a few moments ago with Blake from Luke. Chapter 12, if you're visiting, we have been in a study for the last year and a half in the gospel according to Luke, looking at scene after scene, uh, verse after verse, and we are near the end of the 12th chapter. These verses, these verses are often overlooked. Uh, They just don't seem to fit, but they do fit, and we will see that in just a few moments. Before we do... Let's pray together. Our Father, what a privilege to bow before you. All during the week we bow before you as individuals in prayer. We bow with our families, uh, maybe in some Bible study we're attending. We bow with others. But Father, to be with your church, to be with your people on the Lord's Day morning in worship and bow together as a congregation of priests bringing each other, our families, and the world around us before you in prayer. Oh, Father, I pray that you would lay upon all of us, upon me, upon Tyler, upon our elders, upon our deacons, lay upon this church 
Father, not only this day, not only this week, not only this month, not only this year, but for years and decades to come, lay on this church not only the burden of being prophets to Fayette County, but Father, we pray that you would cause this church to be a congregation of priests bringing Fayette County before you. Our Father, we pray today for the members of this congregation who are hurting, who have physical and spiritual, emotional needs. Our Father, we do pray for Janet Sartell. Our Father, we know that you will bring that ultimate healing to her. Uh, healing, Father, that nothing on this earth can match. We ask that you would cause her to look forward with anticipation of the coming glory. Give her peace and speak to her as only, Father, you're able to speak to her. Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner and ask that you would bring healing to her. Our Father, uh, we pray for Jim, for Billy. We thank you, Father, for their lives, for their testimony, and we pray that you would bless them in these days and give them strength, strength of body, strength of mind, strength of soul. Now, as we open your word, our Father, we pray that we would rejoice in your word, that we would yearn in our hearts to hear it, to understand it, to grasp it. Take that word now and plant it in our hearts and souls. John Sartell cannot do that. No one who stands behind this desk can do that. And so we pray in the power of your Holy Spirit. And you will speak to us. Change us. Continue to change us. Change, Father, us. Maybe some of us for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have not said this before as we've dealt with Luke 11 and 12. Uh, but we're in a section of Luke where Jesus is focused on the teaching of the disciples. If you just... Look at, at these chapters, episode after episode, uh, paragraph after paragraph. He's focused on the disciples. Uh, he, he's saying, this is how, remember, this is how a disciple prays. This is how a disciple handles material blessings and material wealth. This is how a disciple deals with the attacks and injuries from the world. This is how a disciple lives when he understands there's a coming judgment. In the section before this, he, he's looked to the future. And this morning we see Jesus in a burst of passion as he continues to speak about the immediate future there. These words, unusual, uh, 
as we read them this morning, if, if, if that did not hit you, they're just real. And what makes them unusual is the passion that is there. The words were spoken with passion. You can hear the pathos as he speaks about the coming crucifixion, the baptism that he is about to endure. These words are a powerful declaration to the disciples about the price they will pay. As he speaks about his price, he speaks to them about the price they will pay. This is not the Sunday school Jesus giving some soft pablum to his children. This is not the meek and mild Jesus patting us on the head and saying, go out and be nice people, nice boys and girls. Passion. He says it with passion and that's his subject. And we come immediately to see in this passage that Jesus came with a passion to bring a passion, a passion for God to our lives. Jesus came with a passion to bring a passion for God to our lives. This passage, these verses outline themselves. Look at verse 49. He says, it. I have come. Where else have you heard Jesus say this? I have come to bring fire. Suddenly he's teaching and suddenly he just turns to his disciples and says, Matthew, John, James, I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled explanation point. It's a statement full of power and wonder and glory. Jesus said, I've come to bring fire and I can't wait till it is ignited. What's the fire? It was first mentioned in the Old Testament. We won't go back that far. But then it was mentioned again by John the baptizer in Luke chapter 3. Look at on your scripture sheet. John, meaning John the baptizer, answered them all. I baptize you with water. But one comes more powerful than I will come. The throngs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. And people, that scripture, we think, you know, that sounds like those Baptists. But you all know that Jesus was a Presbyterian. And John the Baptist, even though the term Baptist is there, he was a Presbyterian. And what does he say? This is scripture. Inspired, inerrant, infallible scripture. He will baptize you. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's the fire? What's the fire? Look in Acts chapter 2. We read it this morning with Blake. When the day of Pentecost came, they were, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. That's what Jesus was saying that day. There's a fire coming and you have no idea. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and it's, it's the Jewish feast day of Pentecost 
It, the, the Holy Spirit literally blows them out of that upper room. On fire. And they preached with such power that the people were forced to say, what does this mean? What did it mean? The fire had come. The fire had been kindled. It was the fire of the gospel. The fire that the Holy Spirit would bring to the church. The fire that would convict men of sin. The fire that would change hearts. The fire that would indwell the followers of Christ. The fire that would bring a passion for Calvary. A passion for the resurrection. A passion for the world. A fire that would bring that passion to our hearts. The fire that would begin to burn in Jerusalem that day. It would virtually, a fire that could not be put out. The world brought everything it could to put out this fire. And the fire has literally spread to the ends of the earth. What would you have thought that day in Jerusalem? Looking at this motley crew of disciples that had run for their lives out of Gethsemane. What would you have bet that day that this fire, that, these, that this motley crew started, would spread to the ends of the earth and literally change cities and countries and civilizations? That fire is still burning this morning in Fayette County. It's a fire that's building Christ Presbyterian. Let me show you something. Passage that we're all familiar with, especially at Christmas time from Isaiah 9 6. You know it. For to us, a child. God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. What's, what's he saying? Who is that? That's the incarnation, the Son of God from heaven. That is Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God. And what will accomplish this? Look back at the verse. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What will accomplish the incarnation? God coming in the flesh. What will accomplish Calvary? What will accomplish the resurrection? The zeal, the zeal, the passion. Of God. That's what Jesus was saying. I've come to bring fire on the earth. And I can hardly wait for it to fall. What has Jesus brought to our lives? He's brought fire. And passion. For him and for his kingdom. Do you feel passionate this morning? Most of the time. I don't. Where's the fire in my life? Where's this fire? I think there's several reasons that many of us don't see it. First, we don't understand. I think the first problem is we don't understand the radical nature of the gospel. We believe the gospel, but we don't understand the radical nature of the gospel. Last week, as we came to the Lord's table, Tyler made a, a great point. His whole subject was the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of Calvary. The forgiveness that has been brought in us. And then our forgiveness of others. And he said in that, he said in that message that 
We don't understand the extent of our depravity, the extent of our sins. Most of us, really honestly, we think of ourselves as good and moral and it's hard for us to look at the sins of others and be forgiving because we want to look at other people and say, you know, I don't do that. I'm not that bad. You know what Jesus said to the Pharisees? That's the way the Pharisees thought. And what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? The prostitutes and the thieves go into the kingdom of God before you have. I don't think we understand what what it took for God to forgive us. There is nothing in John Sartre. There is nothing in you that would cause God, that would merit the love of God. Do you understand that? That you have to say that in your prayer. Father, there's nothing in me that merits your forgiveness. We find it hard to forgive others because we really do think we're morally superior. And if we think that there's no way for us to be passionate about that cross and passionate about forgiveness unless we understand, understand with a passion the extent of our sin. William Charles McGreedy was a well-known 19th century Shakespearean actor in England. A minister once asked him, well, he said, what's the difference between us? He said, you appear before the crowds night after night with, with fiction, and, and you have the standing room only crowds to hear you. And here I am preaching the essential, unchangeable truth, and there's, there's no crowd there. And McGreedy's answer was painful to hear. He said, it's quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. I present my fiction as if, as, as if it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. What was he saying? You don't have any passion. The word gospel, what does it mean? The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke. What's the word gospel? It means good news. Good news. You, you can't deliver good news without passion. This is the greatest news the world has. Any news that you've ever told anyone can't begin to match this news. So I, I think, where's the passion? We don't understand or believe that the true nature, the radical nature of our forgiveness, of the gospel. Secondly, I think we miss the true meaning of what the fire is. We read this and maybe we think it's about excitement and ecstasy. It's not. It's far more than excitement and ecstasy. Eugene Peterson, a Christian writer, thinker, minister, wrote a book with a wonderful title. He's written many books. But he wrote a book with a wonderful title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, colon, Discipleship in an Instant Society. And he speaks about a long, long, persevering discipleship in the middle of a in the middle of a society that wants everything right now, instant. And that's the way we are as Christians. We want it all right now. 
That's not what this is. The fire brings to our life a long passion, a long love in the same direction. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. There's so many wonderful stories about his life. He lived a very old age. He was, he was 82 years old. And in the latter part of his life was blind. So here's this 82-year-old man. He's blind. And he's speaking to 10,000 people at the Royal Hall in London. This would be his last public message. Let me quote several sentences from that message. This is an 82-year-old man. Faithful, faithful, faithful all of his life. He's right at the end. While children go hungry, while children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. When men go to prison, in and out, I'll fight. When there's a drunkard left, I'll fight. Where there's a poor girl left in the streets, I'll fight. While there remains one dark soul without the light of Jesus Christ, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. He understood. It's not just a temporary excitement, an ecstasy. It's a long obedience, a fire. Remember the fire at the burning bush? What happened? It wouldn't burn out. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. It's a fire that is constant. Sometimes it may seem just a little flicker of light, but you know, on the darkest, on dark nights, and our world is dark. On dark nights, even the smallest, smallest little flame can be seen for miles. However, we must be careful. I was walking through the uh, grocery store this week and uh, knowing that this would be the subject and just happened to see several cards, several different types of greeting cards. And, and they were about passion. And it was, it was passion about different things. This is not just any kind of passion. This is a God-oriented passion, a Christ-oriented passion. That's what he came to bring, a passion in this sinful, broken, fallen world, rebellious against God. He came to replace that rebellion with a passion for God. Remember what Robin Williams playing the eccentric uh, teacher, English teacher in Dead Poet Society. He urged the boys to what? Seize the day. Carpe diem. That's all you heard everywhere throughout the culture. Carpe diem. Carpe diem. It, doesn't, it didn't matter whether you were talking about athletic endeavors, academic endeavors, sex. It didn't matter. Seize the day. But what if you seize the day for that which is empty and dark? What if you seize the day for which that which is meaningless? Nero, Caligula, Hitler, Stalin, Mao. They had passion. They seized the day. They had passion, conviction, zeal for self and pleasure and money and power. The passion that Christ brings out is a passion for the kingdom of God. A passion for that cross, a passion for the resurrection, a passion for his church, a noble passion, the highest passion one can have. Oh, it's wonderful to have passion about other things. Something's wrong with you in your marriage if you don't have a passion about your wife or a passion about your husband. 
Maybe it's understandable when we as parents don't have a passion for our junior high age children. I think that's understandable. But what the Holy Spirit does, he brings the passion for God to every other single area of our lives, in our family where we have a passion for each other. He brings a passion for God for us. In our work where he gives us a passion. Most of us love our work. We, We love what we do. We, God gave us the gifts to do this job. We like it. We have a passion about it. But the passion of the kingdom of God comes first, even in that area. Jesus came with passion to bring a passion for God to our lives. Secondly, Jesus' passion for us. Jesus' passion for us was a costly passion for him. Look at verse 50. For I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it's completed. Jesus was not in a didactic teaching mode. He he was revealing his heart. He was revealing a desire, the depth of desire. I desire for this fire to be kindled, and yet I have a baptism to undergo. That's hard. You can hear the pathos. What if you knew the exact date of your death? What what, what, What if it was October 15th? 2018. Your whole mindset would change between those two dates. You, that would be in the back of your mind all the time. October 15th, I'm going to die. Well, that's the way it was with Jesus. He was not only deity, he was fully man. He was truly man and truly God. He was not impervious to pain and agony. And he knew. He knew the most extreme agony was coming. The sewer of this world, the sewer of this world would flow down upon his soul, would flow down upon him. He would take your sewer, my sewer, take take all the sin, and the wrath of God would fall on him. Why would he endure such a thing? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's how much. Tyler talked about this last week. That's how much God loved you. This father, would you give your son or daughter for the riffraff of this world? God the father gave his son for the riffraff like us. Not because we were good. Get over We should pray every day, God Empty my soul of any such claim to morality. Empty my soul of that. For God so loved the world. That's an amazing statement. Romans 5, 8, look at it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How does he demonstrate? Because he gives us Food every day because he gives us our children, because he gives us a marriage, because he gives us job and cars. Is that what demonstrates his love? No. God demonstrates his love for us and this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you can put your name there. God demonstrates his love for you, John Sartre, 
And that while you were still the sinner, Christ died. For Henry, for Susan, for George, for Alice, for Elizabeth. John Wood, who until recently was senior minister at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, they, they usually had communion by passing the, the bread and the wine out to the congregation, you know, as the congregation was seated. But as he talked to me one day, he was talking about how they were changing that a bit. And several times they would have communion where, like we do, where the elders or deacons would stand, ministers would stand, and, and the, the, the person would come and individually take the bread and take and the reason he was telling me this story is he was saying what a difference it made for him. He said, here's this person standing right in, right in front of him, right in front of him, a foot away from his face. He said, I was able to say to him or to her, do you know how passionately Jesus loves you? This is the body. This is the body. This is the blood of Jesus Christ given for a sinner like you. That's how Folks, sometimes the people that taught me in seminary that had moved away from the gospel and the, the liberals that somehow try to hang on to something about scripture and, and don't believe in the incarnation, don't believe that men are basically men and women are basically sinners, have moved away from the need of salvation. For some reason, they, they try to find some meaning in the death of Jesus. And I heard this taught over and over again when I was in school. That Christ died for no other purpose than to reveal his love to mankind. And I always sat there in those classrooms confused. I said, how in the world does the death of Jesus Christ, if he didn't die for our sins, if he didn't die for us, how does that reveal his love to mankind? If... If my house is burning down and my neighbor runs into that house to, to, to save my child at great danger to his own life, and he runs in and he comes back out with my child, that demonstrates the love of my neighbor for me. But if there's nobody in that burning house and my neighbor runs into that house, all he is is an idiot. It's not about God's love. Jesus' passion for us was a costly passion for him, and that brings us to the last point. And that's where he ends. The first verse said, Jesus came with a passion to bring a passion for God to our lives. Secondly, Jesus' passion for us was a costly passion to him. And Jesus said, our passion for him will be a costly passion for us. Look at verse 51. Do you think I can bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, a division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father. What's he saying? He's saying that as the gospel comes, here's this, here's this, Pagan home. Here's this non-Christian home. The gospel comes. And, and 
a, a son or daughter believes it or a parent believes it and the other part members of the family don't want anything to do with this. He said, when I come to your life, it will bring division. Here's how he said it in Matthew 10, 34. Look on your scripture sheet. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own house. And in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me. He's serious. You'll love him more than you will your family. Listen, we're near the end. What Jesus is saying is he brings this holy, noble passion for the kingdom of God to our lives. It will bring conflict because our sinful lives cannot be reoriented that dramatically without conflict, without disturbance. If Jesus is disturbing your life and disturbing the way you live, you don't understand. I cannot read these words without thinking of a dear, dear friend, a lady who lived in Virginia. She lived near our first pastor. She was not a member of our church. She drove some distance to get there. But I knew when she was there, I knew one fact. Her husband was out of town. She didn't want him to know. She was literally fascinated with the gospel. You could see it. And for some reason, I can't remember why at the time, she was extremely smart. I asked her to read the book of Romans. And a friend of hers told me about her. See, she would sit, she, she would, she would, after her husband went to bed, she would sit in the dark with a little light and, and read the book of Romans. She was passionate about her husband. She loved her husband. And she should. But here was Jesus saying, love me more than you do your husband. And her husband would not understand her loving Christ. Her husband would not understand this uh, a change that Jesus would bring in her life. We've lost this in evangelical Christianity in our country. The division that Christ brings. He'll bring division. He will. J.I. Packer wrote a book entitled A Hot Tub Religion. In which he said we were practicing a Christianity designed to make us feel good and feel comfortable. Is that not what the church is about today? Come to our church. You'll feel comfortable. We shout that. Come to our church. You'll feel good. I, I, <laughs> it's not what Jesus said here. The comfortable Christianity without any cost. There's no such Christianity. It may be called Christianity, but it's not. Jesus was saying, I've come to bring a passion to your life and that passion costs me and that passion will cost you.
Another man sat in my office. He was incredulous. He was well, well known in the community. Very, very, very erudite. Erudite to the point of arrogance. And his son had become a part of our church's youth. And this son was being captivated by the gospel. And this man came and he sat down in my office, literally, and said, John, you don't know me and I don't know you. But I know you're intelligent. And he said, you, you, you've got to tell my son. He's all excited about this. He said, you've got to tell my son that this is a myth. And he was incredulous when I said, it's not a myth. It's not a myth. And he was saying, I can't let, you know, he was ready to disown his son. He was ready to say, you know, I'm not going to support you to go to college if you believe this nonsense. Those words were coming true. I've come to set a father against a son. People, it's easier to get. It, it's harder to get. It's harder to get in the University of Tennessee than it is to get in the church. It's harder to get in a local civic club than it is to get in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's not what Christ is saying. It'll cost you. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the best-selling books in the history of the world. Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know where he wrote it? Where did he write it? He wrote it in jail. Do you know why he was in jail, this noble, good, wonderful man? Do you know why he was in jail? He was in jail for preaching the gospel. All he had to do, they begged him. The authorities, they said, stop preaching the gospel and we'll let you out of jail. He said, then I'll stay in jail. He was a man without means. He had a wonderful wife. He had several children. One of his children named Mary was blind. I want to, I want to read you what he wrote as we close. This is John Bunyan. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor, my poor family has endured. Especially my poor blind child who's closer to my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship. I thought my blind one might undergo. Oh, the thought of the hardship that she has had to undergo. It breaks my heart to pieces. Do you know how long John Bunyan was in jail? Separated from his family? Twelve years. Twelve years. 
<laughs> Satan shouldn't have done that to him. Because God took that great evil and he sent a barrage against the kingdom of darkness. Like, I mean, think about the effect the Pilgrim's Progress has had. You might never have heard of John Bunyan unless he had had that passion and said, I've been called to preach and preach I will. Even if you separate me from my family, even if you put me in jail, I'll suffer the consequences. He understood what Jesus meant when he said, I've come to bring fire on the earth. Our closing hymn is most fitting. There are words that in this circumstance are not easy to sing. O sacred head, now wounded.